Hey, Green Future Growers. Welcome to Season 4. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. I'm here to help you create, grow, and enjoy your own organic oasis. I hope you'll subscribe for free on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing. Hey, everybody. I hope you'll help me donate to The Gentle Barn. Uh, My goal is to raise $620 for them to support the amazing work that they do with their animal rescue. They help people with their mental health that come to visit and kids. And just I really hope you'll go to their website. Um, And my goal is to I need to train over 62 miles to run a 6.2 Uh, mile or 10k on Mother's Day 2022. And so I hope you'll help me reach my running goal by supporting the Jundle Barn. They grow food there. They help uh, rescue animals. They have everything, goats, turkeys, a llama, an emu, just all sorts of cool animals, pigs, um, chickens, cows, donkeys, dogs, turkeys, um, birds, sheep, Um, and so I hope you will help me help them. Thanks everyone. And then, uh, I have your book right here. So, which is so funny because somebody actually recommended your book the other day on my show. So I'm super excited. You you said that in an email and I was thinking, huh, I wonder who that was. It's a woman. She lives near me. So I'm in Northwest Montana Uh and she lives, uh, she just happens to, she's like, I don't know where she found my show, but she couldn't remember, but she started out as a listener and then she wrote to me and came on and um, she's just a backyard gardener here in Northwest Montana. That is great. I want to say, you know, the one thing about Lincoln County is even though we're in Montana, when we get our local channels through the satellite company, we get Spokane news. Oh, and and you're in Spokane, right? Yes. And um, so maybe she saw you on the Spokane, like on a gardening or, or uh, you know, ABC and CBS and NBC affiliates mm-hmm. are all out of Spokane. So we don't get to we get our weather from like Mark Peterson and people. Um, we don't get Montana weather. We don't get Montana politics during the election season. <laughs> we get all the commercials for um, your mayors and, and governors. And we know nothing about what's going on here in Montana, which is sad. I would pay extra. We love the Spokane news. Like we get our weather. You're got you're about twelve hours ahead of us, but we pretty much get the same weather as you do. We get oh, there we go. No, and a little bit colder, but um, so it's kind of nice to know what weather's coming our way. Mm-hmm. But I would I would like to have Montana and Spokane news. When I go to like friends' houses that live in other counties, um, and see the Montana news, I'm like, this is so unfair. But anyway. <laughs> let's let me be quiet and we will let you do all the talking so should i introduce you sure okay welcome to the green organic garden it is friday march 4th 2022 and i have an awesome guest on the line she wrote a book i know you guys are all going to want to read the vegetable garden pest handbook identify and solve common press problems on edible plants and it I just, I really love the way she has it laid out. She's got a wonderful voice in the beginning. There's um, a lot of, you know, just like um, kind of story, you know, an introduction to organic pest management and just like, she just has a really nice tone for writing. And then in the back, 
it goes through like kind of bug by bug and and through the different diseases and things that you can get. And I know this is absolutely without a doubt the biggest question I get on my show. And it also has like, you know, by plant, you can also go like look up melons or kale or corn. So I'm going to be quiet now and turn the mic over to Susan Mulville Hill from Spokane, Washington. So welcome to the show, Susan. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. Oh, well, I'm so glad you're taking time out of your busy day to talk to us. So go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I grew up in Southern California, which is an area where you can pretty much grow anything any time of the year. <laughs> and I really got into gardening as a teenager. A few years later, after my husband and I got married, we decided to move to Spokane because we wanted to get out of the rat race. And of course, that was back in the late 70s. So I have to kind of laugh about that because the rat race then was not <laughs> the rat race that it is now. <laughs> we quickly discovered that the Northwest has four very distinct seasons that includes lots of cold and lots of snow. That was a whole new ball game for us, but we were up to the challenge. We were excited about being in a new place and we have learned so much over the years. So we live in a rural area on five acres and we have a big raised bed garden. I'm a garden columnist for our local newspaper, the Spokesman Review here in Spokane, Washington. And for any of your listeners who aren't familiar with where Spokane, Washington is, it's about 300 miles east of Seattle. And it's a pretty dry area. It's colder. We don't get as much rain as they do on the west side. I shoot gardening videos every week. I now have over 400 of them, and I don't know how that happened. <laughs> and I, as Jackie mentioned, I'm the author of the new book, The Vegetable Garden Pest Handbook, and I'm also co-author of the Northwest Gardener's Handbook. So I do always start the show asking about your very first gardening experience. It sounds like you were probably a kid in Southern California. Like, what do you remember growing and who were you with? You know, uh, probably my most special memory about growing up is my, of my grandmother. You know, she loved to garden. And when I was little, again, being down in Southern California, I would stay with her in Pasadena for a few days. And she would take me out to her garden. She'd show me what she was growing. And one of my most vivid memories is I tasted my first boysenberry ever in her garden. And I thought, man, that is good stuff. <laughs> so my time with her really had an impact on me. And it certainly was the beginning of my love for growing things. That's awesome. You talk about that boysenberry with like such expression and just uh, <laughs> that was perfect. So how did you learn how to garden organically? Was it from your grandmother? You know, I don't think it necessarily was. I've been pondering that. And I think it all started with my subscription to Organic Gardening Magazine back when I was a teenager. And, you know, that's probably not the type of magazine that most teenagers have. <laughs> but I was so interested in how to grow edible crops. I never really, I can't remember being around a lot of pesticides or anything, but 
I just didn't have any interest in using nasty chemicals on something that I knew I was going to eat. So over the years, I've learned how to deal with challenges such as bugs in creative ways rather than reaching for a can of spray. So do you have like, how'd you get to write for the Spokane Review? Do you have like a journalism degree or? No. <laughs> and you know, it, it's funny that you asked that because my life has been a series of opportunities that I've never expected. And what happened is back in about 2001 or 2002, I'm not sure which, I was a member of and still am a member of Spokane's largest garden club, the Inland Empire Gardeners. They have 500 members. So <laughs> we're really big into gardening here. And they have a newsletter. And back then, I started writing a little column for them about gardening things. And I, you know, I send it in every month. It wasn't like it was anything, you know, it wasn't like, Pulitzer Prize award winning. <laughs> it was just things about gardening. And so what I didn't know at the time, because I already was working for the newspaper, is that the Garden Club had been sending copies of their newsletter to the features editor at the paper. And the features editor is the person who oversees the garden columns, among other things. So she came to me just out of the blue one day, and she said, you know, I'd really like you to write for me because I really like your writing style. And I thought, how in the world does she know what my writing style is? And yeah. so I said, what do you mean? And she said, oh, the Inland Empire Gardeners have been sending me copies of their newsletter every month. And I really like the way you talk about different types of gardening subjects. She said, what do you think about writing garden columns. And it was a little scary because I'd never done anything like that before, but I thought, yeah, I'm going for it. So I think I have been writing the garden columns probably for about 16 years for them. I had a little bit of a, a break in the middle from, from doing them, but I really enjoy it. I've met so many nice people as a result. I'm answering questions. I'm always trying to think of, okay, what topic would be really interesting for someone? You know, what do I get a lot of questions about? And of course, I'm also a Spokane County Master Gardener. I've been one for 20 years. And so I get a lot of questions there. And that has always given me ideas for column material as well. But, you know, it just came out of the blue and I just ran with it. And I'm so glad I did because it really has been a great experience. That's awesome. I just started writing a column for my local paper like once a month. They let me Excellent. put a 600 word article in there, which has been so fun and challenging. And usually I try to write like three articles and let them pick one, but um, it's been really good. I wish I would send them to my email list. But I don't, I finally sent one this week because I thought it was, but I also like do the same thing where like I try to think of like what questions, like people always ask me where to get seeds. So my last one was about where, you know, where to get seeds and things. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us about something that grew well this year. What grew well in Spokane? 
Well, I probably have to qualify that first because we had such a rough year last year. We had an extremely hot summer with highs that went up to 114 degrees and oh, that is way too hot. We also have been dealing with a drought for a few years. And on top of that, we had smoke that we had to deal with from regional fires. So it kind of sucked the joy out of me, but it was, it was really awful. tough. Yeah, it was really tough on uh, a lot of the plants. So some of our crops really struggled. But one thing I would have to say that grew really well was sweet potatoes. This is the first time we have ever tried growing them in our northern climate. Um, we're roughly zone 5B to 6A, let's say. And that's not where you would typically think of where someone might grow sweet potatoes. But my husband bought a couple of organic sweet potatoes from our local grocery store. He put each one into a jar of water. Before we knew it, they started sending out roots and sprouts and we ended up with a bunch of slips, which are those little starts that you plant. And we planted them once the danger of frost had passed. They did great. So I think we ended up with about 45 pounds of sweet potatoes, which really wasn't bad for our first try. We're still okay. eating them, believe it or not. And they're just delicious. We're going to grow them again this year. Did you have to cover them at all? You know, Early in the season, we always like to cover the warm season crops with some floating row cover just to give them kind of a nice little toasty start. And then we took them off, you know, not uh, probably after about maybe two or three weeks, let's say. So what's something that didn't go the way you thought it was going to last year? Hmm. Well, the biggest problem we encountered last year was with our tomato and pepper plants. Normally we get this bumper crop of each of them, but it was so hot for a few weeks and it was right at the wrong time, right when the flowers should be pollinated and producing tomatoes, that wasn't happening. You know, the, I think it was so hot, the pollen was just stuck in the flower and, and they just didn't get pollinated. So once the you know, we ended up with a smaller harvest of both tomatoes and peppers. And once the temperatures kind of tried to get back to normal, it's like the tomatoes and the peppers plants tried again, but it was one of those too little, too late situations. So, you know, it was really frustrating. I'm certainly hoping the weather conditions won't repeat themselves this year. And I'm going to really monitor the soil moisture even more closely than I did last year. I'm going to start using um, shade cloth above the plants earlier if, if it really looks like it's going to be hot again. But boy, I sure hope we don't repeat that. Ugh. Our newspaper this week says that uh, we finally returned to a normal amount of moisture, oh, but just good. in our county, like the rest of Montana is still really struggling, but we've had rain for two or three days straight now. We got more snow a week ago Sunday than we got in 2022, like one day it just dumped wow. and we got like a foot and a half of snow. And then, because it was almost like everything was like melted. It was like almost you were starting to think, oh my gosh, we're going to be able to plant in March. And then um, 
and then we got that snow and then now it's just rained on top of everything and the snows we're almost back to where we were three weeks ago we still have a ton of ice but oh, uh, it was encouraging yeah. to hear that our precipitation in our valley is back to what it's been for the first time in a really long time that yeah, is it, wonderful it was just insane the heat i remember my husband trying to get our garden and him being out there with the smoke it was like for a week straight I remember just like I didn't even want to go outside of the house and it's horrible because you have to have your doors your windows shut because you don't want the smoke coming in and just yeah it's been really bad it's amazing and it's coming from California I'm pretty sure it's not even like local right um, I think we did maybe some Canada yeah I think we got some smoke from British Columbia but we also were getting uh smoke from California and it's you know for folks who are listening um in areas that haven't been dealing with these horrible wildfires the smoke it's just choking and it's depressing you know it's it's like Jackie was saying you, you have to you just go inside and you feel like you're just hiding from the conditions you can't have the fresh air from having the windows open and i've had to be really careful because i feel like it has adversely affected my health not not horribly but you know i have this little cough every now and then and i think that started because we've just had year after year after year of horrible smoke yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, the weird thing was then in the fall last year, our grass was totally dry. It was like brown, like you couldn't, you didn't even want to walk on it. It was just getting dusty. And then all of a sudden in like August, the end of August, we ended up getting rain. And my lawn was never so lush as it was in September. That's uh, amazing really how it can recover. Yeah, we've never seen it do that. Um, where it was just like really, really thick and the healthiest lawn. Anyway, this is the part of the show we call getting to the root of things. So do you have a least favorite activity to do in the garden? Something you got to <laughs> kind of force your get out there and do? Well, it's actually kind of maybe kind of an unusual thing. Um, we start most of our plants from seed and I'm talking about peas and beans and corn um, which maybe a lot of people, di yeah, direct so in the garden. Well, I like to do that for a couple of reasons. Um, one is it gets them off to a great start by the time you move them out to the garden. But the other thing is we have a lot of California quail in our garden and, you know, they're beautiful birds. We mm. love watching them, but they love to nibble on freshly sprouted seeds. It is so annoying. <laughs> so I'm starting them indoors before, you know, like a good couple of weeks before I plant them out in the garden. And that just gets them to a, a size where they can fend for themselves. But I find that um, the bean and corn seedlings are really tedious to plant because, you know, you're, you're creating a hole digging up the the seedling out of the seedling tray planting it then going to the next one because i usually plant about it's close to 100 pole bean seedlings and i think it's about maybe 80 corn seedlings and so it's just tedious <laughs> more than anything um with the peas however i do something really unusual not to, not to get off on a tangent here but um, I do something that's called um, growing gutter peas. 
And that's where you start your pea seedlings in rain gutters and you plant them relatively thickly in there. And then when it's time to transplant them out into the garden, you just make a trench that's roughly the same size as the rain gutter. And you, uh, boy, this is hard to describe um, uh, just talking about it rather than, uh, you know, gesturing, but you take the, the one end of the rain gutter and you tip the opposite end way up and you just slide as you're walking, you slide the, the pea seedlings into the trough. And so you can plant like 200 pea seedlings in probably two minutes, which is amazing. And the way I got onto this rain gutter thing is that I like to watch a lot of um, British gardening shows and British gardening videos, lots of people who have allotment gardens and they apparently have a lot of problems with mice eating the seeds and, and, and maybe just barely starting seeds uh, right out of the ground, which is really annoying. And so they, somebody came up with the idea that, hey, if we start them in rain gutters, like in our greenhouses or wherever, and then plant them out into the garden when they are, you know, a few inches tall, we've gotten around that problem with the mice. So I just saw it and I thought, that's really interesting. I've got to try that. And it is the coolest thing ever. And I've shot a lot of videos on the whole process. I have a, a fairly new one that's on my YouTube channel that um, I just released a couple of weeks ago. So um, it's probably nobody's heard of uh, gutter peas, but it's cool. <laughs> I haven't heard of it. That's awesome. I'm going to put the link to your video in the show notes. Okay. Uh, because I would love to see that. And I, the thing I love about transplanting is that like, it's like all of a sudden you have like instant fed, but yes. um, that is interesting. And that, that's a great way to do that. Have you, you can't do that with like the corn and the beans. Um, like I think, specifically? I th yeah, I think the reason you can get away with doing it for peas is because they are used to growing pretty closely together and they're not with pole beans, let's say. Um, I mean, you still will plant them just a few inches apart, but the stems are so succulent that I think that the transplanting process could potentially snap them. You know, I've never tried it. And of course with corn, uh, you need to plant them, you know, roughly a foot apart. And so it wouldn't really benefit you that much to uh, start them in the gutter. So for me, it peas have, has been the only crop that I've done this with. Golden seed, Susan, golden seed you're dropping. So <laughs> on the flip side, what's your favorite activity to do in the garden? Okay. I would say it's shopping my garden. And by that, I mean, walking out to the garden, looking to see what's ready to be picked and coming up with a meal based on that. So my husband, Bill and I, it's like every night when we're sitting down to have dinner, we're always saying we eat like Kings. This is just so fantastic. And even this time of year, because I grow enough food to where I can 
um, you know, preserve some things, freeze things, store things uh, like winter squash and onions and beets and carrots and turnips and, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so it definitely is just going out in the garden and you know, with no clue what I'm going to make for dinner and saying, okay, tomatoes, what could go with that? Oh, let's get some basil. Oh, let's get some onions. Let's get a little bit of garlic and, you know, go from there. It's, I just think that is the coolest thing ever. And eating in the winter, you're so right. I just took a thing of uh, frozen tomato sauce out of the freezer yesterday mm. to have today. Nice. Um, what's next? What's the best advice you've ever received? I think, you know, I've gotten a lot of good advice over the years, but I think probably the best is to keep a garden journal. You know, sometimes things don't go according to plan. And it's not the end of the world, but I think it's important to learn from them. So I always recommend jotting down some notes about what you do differently the next time some type of a problem comes up. Um, other important notes like, you know, when did you plant your tomatoes? When did you harvest them? How long was your harvest? Um, did you have an insect problem? What did you do about it? Did that work? Would you do the same thing if you have the problem next year? And, you know, or would you, how would you change that? By having a garden journal, I think that's how we become better gardeners every year. You know, I always think I'm going to remember things from year to year. And <laughs> now that doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't. You think I'm never going to forget this. And like, even two weeks later, you'll be like, what was that? Because that yeah. <laughs> you've got some new problem or some other thing going on. And I love that, especially we have a garden journal that people can buy, but. Oh, nice. Um, and you know, um, okay. Now just, I just thought of something, uh, you know, sometimes during a growing season, you know, let's say you're visiting, uh, your neighbor who has a garden or one of your friends and they say, oh my gosh, this is the first year I've grown this kind of bean or whatever. And it is fantastic. And you think, okay, I've got to remember the name of that variety, <laughs> write that in the journal because <laughs> you won't. <laughs> It's so true. I definitely go back through our journals. I've gotten a little slack because it seems like now I take pictures of everything and I think, oh, I'm going to look at the picture and then write it in the journal. And I don't always do that, but yeah. Um, do you true. know, I've, I've got, uh, sorry, I've got um, 8,000 photos on my phone <laughs> and it's a nightmare. I mean, I had intended right? to sort through them this, this past winter, but I was so busy. I thought, okay, it's going to have to wait, but it's, oh my gosh, it's crazy. No, I know that well. Cause my husband, and I wrote a book called the um, organic oasis guidebook and trying to like find the right picture and go back. Cause I take thousands of pictures every year and going yes. back to pictures over the years and trying to find that perfect sage plant or you know, this illustration of like the before and after of the mini farm or like what right. the shed look like, like it's just um, too many photos. And now like <laughs> at least my brother showed me that like you can create albums on your iPhone. Yes. Then the albums don't transfer to your computer. So it's almost like doing double work. It, you go back to your computer and you got to sort through them all over again. That is exactly it. It's, you know, it's, it's a curse and it's a blessing. <laughs> right. And then my cousin said, I was complaining about how long it took to upload a video to YouTube versus where it seems like Instagram is so much less time. And she's like, 
well, so what? What's because I was like, you know, a 37 second video on Instagram will take like four minutes on YouTube. And she's like, well, what's four minutes? And I'm like, because there's like thousands of videos. So that's like 4,000 videos. And then yeah, finding the right one. Like, I can't just post um, our gardens too far away from the Wi Fi. Yeah. And so I have to come back in the house and I always think, all right, I'm going to go up and uh, upload it. But then you're like in the midst of cooking dinner and I want to yep. pay attention to my husband and like it doesn't get done. And then all of a sudden it's the weekend and you're like, oh, I could do a whole week. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> um, my next question is tool. If there's a favorite tool that you would like to use, if you, is there a favorite tool you'd like to use? If you had to move and could only take one tool with you, what could you not live without? I'd have to say it's a kneeler bench. And if anyone's unfamiliar with them, um, this is how they work. So it's a padded kneeler that has tall handles on it that stand up. And so what you can do is you can use the handles to lower yourself down onto the kneeler using your arms. Oh. And when you have to get back up again, you use your arms to push yourself back up to standing. And it is a leg and hip saver, let me tell you, you know, because if you think about gardening, isn't it the constant up and down and up and down and up and down? <laughs> I mean, it goes on and on. And if you, uh, what I like about it also is that if you need to sit somewhere for a while to do uh, what I call a tedious yeah. task, like um a pr uh, deadheading uh, that takes forever or picking blueberries, which is, it's a nice project, but it's very tedious. You just flip over the kneeler while those handles are still standing up and it turns into a bench and they're super easy to find at garden centers and from online sources. They are fantastic and they're worth every penny. Although I should add, they're not really all that expensive. Um, I think they range between about maybe like $34 and $50, let's say. And I use mine like crazy because it is so much harder on our bodies just to use all, all of our muscles to get up and down all day. And by the end of the day, you know, you're just exhausted from all of that and so sore. And this thing is a lifesaver. My mom has one of those, but I never, I just always thought it was like, a, you know, a thing to sit on while you were like, for me, the big one is like picking green beans. Like I look at my husband, yes. and I'm like, how do you <laughs> do this? I don't, I like 20 minutes and I'm done. He'll be out there for like two hours picking his rows of green beans because he wow. cans them all for the year. And we eat a nice. lot of green beans. And so, but I'm just always amazed, you know, and then, and just everything. But I always thought it was either just a seat or like you said, for your knees, but I never thought about it as something to help you actually get up from being down on the ground. Yes. That's an awesome tip. How about a favorite recipe from the garden? I do have a good one. So we love to make our own salsa. And, and, and it sounds like we're very similar to you and your husband because we're both very active in the garden together and we team up on cooking projects and canning projects and so on. So we make our salsa from the tomatoes, the peppers, the onions, and the garlic that we grow. And we have been tweaking the recipe over the years, and it is to die for. And just so everybody knows, I put the recipe on our website, my website, susansinthegarden.com. 
if you go to that website, there is a menu that says guides, as in G-U-I-D-E-S. And underneath that, there's a section called preserving the harvest. And I created that section because I think a lot of times either, let's say a person is a new gardener and, and they're so excited, they grew a bunch of um, green beans, like we were talking about, and what do we do with them, you know? Um, and then also just for people who've been gardening for forever and they're looking for something new to do, you know, I've got things like how to roast winter squash or how to make a, a homegrown homemade pumpkin pie. So um, the salsa recipe is under there. Um, there's another recipe that's, that's really good also, and that is oven roasted tomato sauce. And that's something like what you do where you freeze it afterwards um, to use later. Do you peel your tomatoes? We do not. And you know, sometimes uh, people ask me about that because they're thinking that must mean that the sauce or the salsa is really um, fibrous or something. But by the time you do all of the, the steps, it's, it's pretty hard to even tell that there's skin in there. But I read this thing once that like you can't can tomatoes with the peels on them. Oh, that's interesting. Because it's like that's how you get like the botulism. And so like the first year I canned my tomatoes and or like I made tomato salsa uh -huh. for my husband and tomato sauce for him. And I was like, all right, it's ready. Are you gonna do the canning part? And he's like, all right, where's your recipe? And I got the recipe out and I hadn't paid attention to the part about the, you had to peel them. And so that's why I freeze it because I had read that thing there. But then when I went to your recipe, I saw that you had it canned. So I thought, I mean, I do put some in jars that I just put right in my fridge and just eat right away. But um, huh, yeah, you know, I had a problem apparently, huh? No, not at all. And actually for the, um, the salsa, it, the, the thing that I, I don't know a lot about botulism, except it's something I never want to have or share. <laughs> and uh, basically it's, it's because uh, it, it happens typically um, and most commonly with um, vegetables that have not been processed properly um, because vegetables are, are very low in acid. And so with the salsa recipe, that one contains vinegar and we also add in citric acid. And so it, it will be acidic enough to, to freeze and it's safe. The oven roasted tomato sauce recipe does not have vinegar in it. It doesn't have the citric acid. And so that's why we freeze it and then just thought when we want to make you know, spaghetti sauce or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's the acidity. And of course, what a person needs to do to be, I, I'm all about uh, being safe, believe me. Um, they need to use a pressure canner in order to can things like, let's say green beans or. Um, yeah, what that's why I don't do it. Cause I always look at it. I'm like, you're, you remind me of like in chemistry class or like some kind of like scientist and I just I get nervous with the pressure can I don't even like to be in the kitchen when he has it out they do <laughs> give silly. me the it's totally like <laughs> being ridiculous but my no it isn't actually because um 
we had an accident with a regular pressure cooker once it was not pretty <laughs> and um so yeah both bill and i are uh very leery about that so we do not have a pressure canner and we don't can anything that is uh low acid um mm -hmm. so we always blanch and freeze our um, beans which we think they taste fresher that way anyway than, than canning them um you know we we only can right. yeah and we just can um either like the uh again the salsa because uh it has all the acidity mixed in with it and then things like you know peaches and applesauce and all of that because those are super high in acidity and the thing with tomatoes that folks need to know is that as all of these hybrid varieties have been developed over the years they have tend to be lower uh have lower acidity than what the more heirloom types um had and i think that some of the plant breeders have done that on purpose because some people um, have problems with uh, food that is high in acidity. And so I think they, you know, I've tried to make um, tomatoes that are, you know, sweeter and uh, less acidic, but that raises the risk for uh, botulism unless you use um, pressure canning as your method to preserve them. So I like freezing. <laughs> we got a chest freezer two years ago and it's been a game changer for sure. Yes. How about an internet resource? Where do you find yourself surfing on the web? Well, um, I do have a tip. Um, when I'm trying to research something like an insect or a plant disease, I'm always really careful to consult research-based websites. This is really important because you want to get reliable information. So when I say research-based websites, I'm talking about ones that are affiliated with universities like Extension. And I, what I wanted to share with your listeners so they always get reliable information in a web search is, um, to add a little something to their search words. And so let me explain what I mean. Let's say you're trying to look up information about aphids. So this is what you'd type for your search words in your web browser. So you type the word aphids and you'd put in a space and then you're going to type site, S-I-T-E, the equals sign E-D-U and you run that all together. So again, it would be aphids space site, S-I-T-E equal sign E-D-U. And what happens is the results that you get back from your search will put the educational sources right at the top. This works like a charm. And you know, I learned this, uh, well, quite a few years ago as a master gardener, because when people would contact us with a problem with bugs or whatever, we wanted to make sure we were giving them really reliable results. And if it was something we needed to research, we wanted to make sure we stuck with the educational sources because that's the best place to go. And so I learned this tip and boy, it works like a charm. Well, I'm glad you spelled that all out for us because I've had other people say, you know, go to the edu.sites, but Nobody ever said to like, or I don't remember anybody 
thing hits site equal i wrote it down yeah site yeah, equals, site equals edu. edu and that's what it's you know so when you get your results back when you look at the website that 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 came back in the results instead of saying dot com on the end it's going to say dot edu mm. yeah how about a favorite book you can recommend and then we'll talk about your book um well i was thinking that um you had also wondered about maybe like a website and as far as a favorite a favorite reading material um in your questions and one of the best gardening websites that i like is joegardener.com and that is uh, joe lample's website he has a ton of videos lots of resources he's really good about using research-based information and of course he's very into organic gardening which is great so um, as far as a website goes that is definitely um, a good one to check out. And then as far as a book would go, I think I would have to say one of the ones that I go back to time and again is the Vegetable Gardener's Bible. And that is by Edward Smith. And that one's been out for quite a few years and it has been a really good one. Awesome. And listeners, if you want to hear my interview with Joe Lampall, it's episode 226 from April of 2018. Excellent. I love Joe Lampall because we watch his show on Saturday mornings during the greener world. And it was like interviewing a celebrity. I was like, you come to my living room every week. And like, I can't believe I'm talking to you. And uh, the other thing I will say is like, if uh, you're on Facebook, his gardening group on Facebook is really active and full yes. of valuable information. Yes. And I have to tell you something about Joe Lample. So he's a friend of mine. And um, a few years back, let's see, that would have been 2016, I think. Um, he contacted me and he said, hey, I would love to do an episode of Growing a Greener World with in your garden. And I thought, oh my gosh, what am I doing? <laughs> and so we agreed to do it. And um, so it it is episode 809. And it's called In Susan's Garden, which is probably not a big surprise. <laughs> and it, it also, they, um, he reprised that episode um, during his 12th season, which is of growing a greener world. So it was on again, just recently. And the funny thing that happened is in um, earlier this month, or well, in February, I was a speaker for uh, two presentations at the Northwest Flower and Garden Festival in Seattle. And the morning of the day, the second day that I was going to be speaking, I got a text from my sister and she said, your episodes on growing a greener world here. <laughs> and I mean, it was just amazing timing. And so I was getting ready to give my talk that afternoon. And so I looked out at the audience and I said, 
how many of you watch Growing a Greener World? And all these hands sprung up. And I said, um, did you happen to watch it this morning? And everyone's like, yes. <laughs> and so they had just seen what my garden looked like, oh you know, God. and then here I was speaking to them. So it was kind of a funny uh, coincidence. Aww. That's a great, we are uh, garden great garden program. I'm putting the link in the show notes as we speak. So thank you for you listeners that you can check out Somehow today I end up, I never do this, but because I was doing all these interviews today and uh, somebody wanted their show out like right away, I like, I don't know, I started doing my show notes while I was talking to you. Wow. Um, or before, <laughs> not while I was talking to you, but in between, but so I have the, the page open. So I was able to put the salsa link in there already and the growing a greener world link. So I am uh, impressed. You, you are a multitasker. <laughs> Well, isn't I used to actually type my show notes while I was talking to my guests. And then I ended up getting this transcription service. And so she just does it so inexpensively now. Nice. I don't have to do all of that typing anymore. So I actually handwrite them in a notebook while I'm talking <laughs> because I like if I'm gonna follow along or if I want to like ask a question, I can write it down or I want to make notes or like I'll be like, what was I talking about? Where were we? I just, I have to like, you know, it's something about that pen to paper or keyboard to paper anyway, but people complained also that when I was typing, they could hear the clicking in the background. Um, so that's part of why I mute my mic, but also ah. always like, Jackie, you talk too much. We don't want to hear from you, so, which I'm doing already. What I want to ask you some questions about your book. Like, where did all these pictures come from? Like, where did you do the research? I mean, this is so thorough and there's so much information and just, it's, it's written so like clearly and put together really nicely. Like, you know, it's easy. It, I've seen a lot of gardening books at this point. Like either I took them out of the library, you know, you're interviewed 421. So I've had, you know, that many guests recommend that many books. So usually if they recommend a book, I take it out of the library if I can, or like I was saying, people have been mailing me garden books the last two years. So um, tell us about the book. Like, where did all this research come from? And where did these photos come from? Well, pretty much me. <laughs> so, no um, you know, as a, a garden columnist and a master gardener, I get asked a ton of questions about bugs. I, I think that's probably the number one question and probably the same for you. And I, you know, I don't mind answering the questions at all, not, not in the least. However, I kept thinking, why isn't there an easy to use guide to the bugs you might encounter in your vegetable garden? And actually there's a lot of bugs that are sort of cross over into the ornamental landscape, like aphids and spider mites and thrips and so on. But I, I never could find anything that I felt was user-friendly. There are a lot of awesome insect books, so don't get me wrong, that are really great reference books, but I wanted something that could be tailored for beginner gardeners all the way through master gardeners. I didn't want to make it too sciencey because I didn't want people's eyes to glaze over and think, oh, I just don't understand this. I wanted to just talk in regular language so that it would all make sense. And the other thing that I believe very strongly in, which I know you do too, is in organic gardening, not using pesticides and herbicides and 
and uh, synthetic fertilizers and so on. But especially with insects, I thought there are so many things we've put into practice over the years in our garden that will uh, either keep you know, act as a physical barrier to keep an insect away. We've made traps, we've come up with different methods. And I know there are a lot of methods that I've learned about over the years from other gardeners. So I proposed the book idea to um, Cool Springs Press uh, a couple of years back. And um, they loved the idea. They said, yes, let's write the book. So, well, it was me writing the book. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I I think I have kind of a, um, an orderly brain. And so as I started to think about how I would present the information, I thought, okay, let's make chapter one be about why organic gardening is important and what types of important cultural practices should you engage in, in your garden to keep your plants really healthy. And so that'd be things like, you know, planting your garden in a sunny location, monitoring it on a regular basis, watering the right amount, um, you know, really, really keeping your plants healthy so that if you do have an insect problem, they're probably better able to withstand those types of attacks. And then in chapter two, which is the meat of the book, what I did is I created this massive diagnostic chart because I thought, okay, a person's out in the garden, they see a bug, they don't know what it is. And so how are they going to know what to go look at so that they can figure out what to do about it? So I thought, okay, let's, let's make a chart that is by the different types of crops. So let's say you're growing beets and you see holes in the leaves. Well, this chart will list all of the different types of damage you might see on a plant. And so you go through and you say, oh, okay, there's, there's irregular holes in the leaves. That might be, and it points you to the possible insect culprits. And each of those goes to an individual insect profile that describes the insect, what their life cycle is, what types of crops they're usually seen on, what their damage looks like, who their natural predators are, that's important to know. And then all the different organic methods you can use to control them. And so you asked about the photos. Um, I wrote this book during the pandemic and I guess I'd like to say the pandemic is over, we're getting there. <laughs> but um, so initially when I signed the contract for the book, they wanted me to provide them with 200 photos. And I thought I really stressed about that. And then the pandemic occurred and I thought, okay, I can't travel to any other regions to get these photos because travel was not an option. So they were great. I was able to provide 170 photos, which I thought was pretty darn good. And then they, they were able to find sources for the other photos. But yeah, you, you would have laughed to see me every day out, out in the garden. You know, I'd, I'd head out there with my camera and I think maybe I'll find a bug today. And, you know, normally <laughs> as a gardener, you don't root for, for spotting bugs. And then the other thing that I really tried to do was to show insects in photos um, where they're at a different stage in their life cycle. Because a lot of times, you know, maybe somebody doesn't know yes. that the white cabbage butterfly is the adult form of those nasty green worms that chew on your broccoli and your cabbage. 
So anyway, that's what's in the second chapter. And what's also in there is a chart that is a guide to the most commonly seen and maybe sometimes not commonly seen um, beneficial insects, because I wanted people to recognize them so they know don't squish that thing because it's going to prey on. And I list all the insects that they do prey on and ways to uh, encourage more of them to take up residence in your garden. And then finally, in chapter three, it's divided oh. into two sections. And so the first half is about organic products that you might pick up at your garden center, let's say. I wanted people to know how they work, when to apply them, which insects they work against, and also, more importantly, if there's any concerns about using them, because there are some different types of um, organic products that actually are toxic to pollinators. And I think a lot of people don't rec realize that. So for example, neem, everybody says, yeah, neem is great. Well, it will kill pollinators. So will pyrethrins and spinosad. And so my book was not intended to say, don't use this. It's more, you need to know about this. So you apply it at the right time of day. So super early in the morning or super late in the day when the pollinators aren't active. And then the second half of chapter three is a whole bunch of fun and interesting do-it-yourself projects that Bill and I did together and photographed together. And that so it, your husband? It, the, that's, that's him awesome. in there. <laughs> I know the insect hotel. And yeah. Yeah. Insect covers. hotel for attracting beneficial insects. We've got um, little barriers that we make to keep slugs away from plants using copper tape. There's cucumber beetle traps in here. We've got uh, cutworm collars, earwig traps. Um, let's see what else is in here. Um, we made a uh, showed how to make a simple raised bed and then a special hinged cover that you can put on the top to keep certain types of insects away. Row cover hoops, uh, a type of reflective mulch that works really well in keeping flea beetles spider mites and some other insects away from plants. So yeah, we had great fun doing that part. And then there's lots of resources in the back um, if people are looking for even more information. I didn't realize that that was the, that there was the meet the bugs where the profiles of the beneficials and then the pest profiles. Like that's awesome that we have that. And I, you know, um, Jessica Wallacher really got me out looking at bugs last year and being yes. excited about um, seeing all these beneficial insects in my garden that I never even realized were there. But I just have to mention these two really quick, like earwigs. I didn't realize earwigs were better. I hate, like I quit growing <laughs> romaine because I can't grow romaine without getting earwigs. But now, at, like, especially after reading your thing, um, I'm thinking maybe I should grow some crops to get them in there just as the beneficial insects. And then is it like you put, what is it, bridal veil netting instead of row cover? And, the, and that made the sun come out so that you didn't have the earwig. I mean, the sun got through more? Yes. So, um, and actually, you know, like, like true gardeners, we're always sort of refining our techniques and everything. So we, we were even trying something 
newer this year. But first, um, so bridal veil netting is also known as tulle, T-U-L-L-E. A lot of folks who, uh, if they sew, they, they're familiar with that name. And so it's a, a relatively fine netting. And I have used it over cabbage family crops because um, I feel like because they're a cool season crop, they benefit more from good air circulation and that the tool would provide more airflow than the floating row cover will, even though I'm, I mean, I love floating row and cover. And also would it work more for more water getting through? Cause last year I finally like put the row cover over my kale and there were three nights I left it out. And I think I had the worst kale, more bugs and problems last year than I've ever had just from those three nights that I didn't cover it. Oh my gosh. I would take it off every day to put the water in. And I'm thinking that tool will let more water in. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It will. So here's what we're trying this year. And of course it's so new to us. It's not in the book, but we, uh, the thing that I don't like, well, there's two things that I, I don't like about tool. Um, even though I buy the, it's called premium quality and it's, it's not terribly expensive or anything, but it has smaller holes. I have still gotten some aphids going through them, the little buggers. And then the other thing that happens with tool is it's very delicate. Um, so it's easy to tear oh. it and so on. And that's, that's a nuisance. So this, uh, this year for the first time ever, we are going to try some, um, what's called either agricultural netting or insect netting. And so it looks like a really fine window screen, but it's not that stiff. And, and when you put it over your plants, you can see right through it. So you don't have to lift the row cover to see how the plants are doing, or if it's time to pick some or whatever, you can just look right through the screen and uh, see how the plants are coming along. So we're gonna try that this year over our broccoli crop. I, and the holes in the netting is, are so small that they're saying aphids can't get through it. So I thought I've got to try that. And I also, I had someone ask me this morning, would flea beetles get through it? I don't think so. Um, it, the holes looks, well, I, they're so tiny. We just got it in the mail the other day. And, but you can see right through it. And so I would say water would go through it more easily and certainly uh, plenty of sunlight uh, coming in. So I'm okay. very excited Susan, about trying I that. hate to cut you off and I hate to do this, but I have another interview starting in like- Oh, yes, seconds, you do. Literally. So tell listeners again, it's Susan's in the garden. Yes, Susan's, yeah, Susan's in the garden.com. There's no, no apostrophe in there. <laughs> and I just tell people when you want to find me, just think of that as all one word. So if you want to email me, it's Susan at Susan's in the garden.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. It's Susan's in the Garden. My YouTube channel is youtube.com slash Susan's in the Garden. Susan Maholville, everybody. Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. Don't forget to help me support the gentle barn by signing up to donate at organicgardenerpodcast.com slash gentle. That's organicgardenerpodcast.com backslash gentle. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? 
If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.